This weekend at Auckland Museum, there's been a rare overnight wānanga to share knowledge around an extraordinary object. Te rā. It's the only customary Māori sale in existence that's returned to Christchurch in Auckland for exhibition after 200 years or thereabouts in storage at the British Museum. One of those at the gathering this weekend is trailblazing installation artist, weaver and teacher Dr Maureen Lander. Born in Rawane in the Hokianga, Lander is of Napui, Te Ki, Kutu, Irish, Scottish and English descent. She's a former senior lecturer in Māori material culture at the University of Auckland and she's had a major role in the contemporary evolution of weaving, creating exciting art installations which are rich in research into our history. Her work is currently exhibited at the Christchurch Art Gallery and at the historic Kirikiri Mission Station. I spoke to Maureen on Friday ahead of the Wananga, and I started by asking her about her first meeting with the sale to Ra. My first encounter was way back in the 1990s and I was a close friend of Mick Pendergrass. He was curating um, the show. He was a pa- um, one of the curators of Māori Taonga held by the British Museum. Yes. And it was a show called Māori and there was a book called Māori Art and Culture which he mm. also contributed to. So he was showing me photographs and telling me about things in that Exhibition and the Ra was one of them. And I travelled to UK in 1998 um, to S on my sabbatical, and that was on the top of the list of what I wanted to do when I got to London was go and see that show. So that's when I first came face to face with Tara, standing tall. in that exhibition, and I was bowled over. I, I, I saw that exhibition as well, actually, uh, and it was re- re- remarkable. And, and, and you, it, it's a, Tara is quite close to you in terms of your whakapapa, Whiranaki, I think, is it, on the Hokianga? Uh, is that where, this, where the sale originates from? No, we don't know where it originates from, ah. but the group that have been making the replica Ra, that's where... They are based. Ah, I see, yes. Okay, so they're... Pa Te Araha, and the group are called Te Raupa, and that means the calloused hands from all the weaving <laughs> and prepping of the materials. And, yeah. and you helped lead the group over to visit Te Ra, what, 2010, to the British Museum? Well, I had already been twice, and I had been able to photograph it up close, and... The British Museum invited me back to do some weaving demonstrating for a show they had coming up. And I asked if um, some weavers could come in my place because I, I realised that these this group of women that I had joined their group were very skilled weavers. It would be perfect mm. to replicate the VAR if they could look at it and figure out how the most difficult parts of it were done. It's, so they mm. went in my place. It's got a, a, a sort of a three-way pattern. Can you describe, it sounds quite sophisticated, can you describe what makes it kind of complex or interesting from a weaving perspective? Uh, it's very, very fine. It's finer than any of the mats that people weave these days. Mm. It's about one to two millimetre wide each strand, so you can imagine that's very fine when most kiti would go to um, much wider strands than that, and so would most of our whāraki. 
Uh, the difficult part of it were the joins. The whāraki makers didn't know how to do that particular join. Mm. And then to put a, a complex pattern through the join at the same time as you're dropping out strands and adding strands in um, was very complex. Yeah. So that was the most difficult part. The shaping is difficult. Um, you're having to start at the wide end, which is the top, and weave from that and dropping out as you go to have uh, an angled sail, which is helped by s- the seams that are sewn along the side later for strength. Yeah. There's a lot to learn, and the, the mm-hmm. weavers... Um, yeah, most people will look at the ra, they'll, they'll be really impressed by it, but we speak its language, or we think of her as a, a kuya and a teacher. So because we speak her language, she can speak to us and did, and we've learned a huge amount from just sitting alongside. It's the group who've done it. I'm, I'm just the kind of mentor in the background. Yeah. And they're an amazingly skilled group of women and they had to learn to weave together and weave to each other's tensions, you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this wānanga this weekend is much wider, isn't it, in terms of bringing together people around around Ra? Well, we, while we've got um, the Ra from the British Museum here at Auckland Museum and we've got our own display of our two replica Ra, one is a two-thirds size and the other is a full size. We want to make the most of, while that exhibition is up, to take our project to um, on a, a further journey. And that journey is to get those ra back onto the water on waka. And we have started teaching other groups around the country, so some of them are already planning the size of the waka they want to make of the size of the ra they want to make for a particular waka. There's a lot to learn that we, we can't learn from the actual weaving process, but in the design itself, you know, the weave must be there for a reason. Mm. We're interested in why it has, like, serrated edges, like teeth. Why does it have that pattern through mm. it? And, and a lot of things about the weaving that must have evolved working with people who make waka and sail waka. And we just want to get together with them and compare notes about why they think certain things are there and how it might behave. I mean, we've got people coming who've tested the sail shape in a wind tunnel at um, engineering school. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, so... <laughs> We've, we've invited people who we think can help with the mātauranga. And the mātauranga is, is something that evolves, you know, like we, just, we want to do it mm. by experimentation and talking to each other. It's not like any of us want to stand up and give a speech or anything, like a symposium. We want to do this just around sharing knowledge in a wānanga style. I mean, you've worked across the academic and the community space and the Māori space and um, this kind of recovery of Matoranga Māori and its kind of evolution. It's, it, it feels like an exciting time to, to break down the barriers and I guess your work has always 
done in a way between the so-called customary space and the, the contemporary in terms of what we can learn from from the past. And you've described, I think, maybe this encounter with Tara, this almost a feeling of an electrical current running through and uh, the, the work, this kind of... Uh, and, and this use of the fingers. And it feels to me that we, we, we are at an exciting time where we're starting to value more both this kind of customary knowledge but also working, that you know, the intelligence within our fingers. Yes, um... When you touch something like the ra, you're touching where other women have touched, exactly. And yeah. it, it's almost like energy Wow! Yes, coming through from our tūpuna and connecting us. We, we called our show the, the Te Karanga o Te Rā. It feels like we've been called. Mm. And if you think about something like Te Rā, it's locked away under the... British Museum somewhere in the darkness yeah. as soon as somebody appears that it can connect with it kind of grabs you and then you feel like you have to do something about it and that's where we, we all feel like that when we see her, see her and so that has been the, the really the underlying kind of thing um, she's the last one in the world Mm. And that knowledge is there. You don't want it locked away in the dark in any museum. And well, even out in the open, people can't understand it unless they can replicate it and experiment and play and see where that leads. Mm. And and this sense of, 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 of the light in the darkness and this electricity. It kind of reminds me of the other encounter I've had with your work recently, which is in Christchurch at Ōtutahi, with the representation of a work of yours, and uh, this is around the string games, the Aha Marama exhibition, Strings of Light. This, this work with string games, it's quite a remarkable coming together of that work, which I think you first did uh, at Te Papa when it opened in 1998, the sort yes. of <laughs> traditional string games, but with UV. So, I mean, literally, uh, for those listeners who can visit Ōtutahi, you know, you you enter a darkened room where everything is lit by UV light uh, and you, it feels like these customary or these traditional things have been brought forward uh, in, in a really, really interesting, bold way. This, this work that you've done with String Games uh, has uh, had many iterations, hasn't it, Maureen, and over the years? It has. The first one, String Games was a response to uh, James MacDonald's photographs and also his videos. It was part of an exhibition called Facing IT, which mm. Lisa Rayhana and a few other artists were in. This is back in that the photographs would have been taken back in, the, what, the 1920s, perhaps? Yes, mm. around about the 1920s. And the photographs are beautiful. There's just black and white, so the white glows against the darkness just as white. And even when I put the photographs in the first exhibition, they glowed from the effect of the UV (laughs) as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in a way it's connecting with what draws people these days. There's there's a lot of neon, there's a lot of video games and things. They've got really bright light. I was thinking about digital in that form, the fingers and also the coded zeros and ones. So in a way that the weaving that we, we did customarily is, has a connection through to the way we work with binary code, right? 
Well, it, to me, it's a very early form of coded language. Yes. And a, a very early moving image way of telling stories. Ah. Because the the different figures can flick into the next part of a story. And Toby Rikihana mm. used to do that on Māori television. He'd be telling <laughs> stories with the strings. And you could see the story evolving as he made them. He was an amazing uh, string game player. And so the language of string games and its sophistication is kind of illustrated there on the wall, I think, in that, that installation in Christchurch, isn't it, in terms of the diversity of, of the language, almost like a vocabulary. It is like a vocabulary, but it's a universal vocabulary. So um, because you've got ten fingers, ten toes, and a mouth, yes, you can make variations on a loop of string. And quite often places that have never come in contact with each other made similar figures. And like, for instance, the one that is ah, the cup yes. and saucer in Cat's Cradle, which is a European way of playing it, mm. is the wakaama ah. in the Pacific, but up the other way around, you know. So <laughs> so what what gets attached to the string figure is the story that goes with the people who make it or the place where it's made. And it explains star patterns, navigation patterns, all sorts of things in the natural world. Yeah. And coming back to this kind of notion of, of this tension between the customary and the contemporary and, and how that's changing, one of the things I loved about this work, which I think goes back to 1998, is this kind of connection with Marcel Duchamp, uh, the idea of conceptual art and, and the customary. So I believe in, there's a film, I think, that you made that where you, you take um, some Marcel Duchamp, the conceptual artist, prints out of a case and then you put some local tonga relating to the fire to the string games into it. Well, with the opening of Te Papa, there was a whole lot of thinking around what is a museum. And um, it was, Te Papa was going for a, a lot more interaction than a museum like Auckland was perhaps doing at the time. And yeah. so um, there was that whole question underlying our work as, or what is a museum? And Marcel Duchamp's box was a portable museum. Mm, it's like a of small his work, of miniatures, wasn't it? Of miniature of Duchamp's his work, works. Yes. Yeah. And so I just unpacked that on film. I had somebody with white gloves unpack it, and then somebody repack it with things to do with the McDonald photographs and mm. how to, how you make string, and some uh, early images of people playing those string games, especially the one called Ara Piki Piki A Tafaki, which is also in that exhibition in Christchurch, as the big figures around the, the wall with the code running through. Okay. Yeah. So there's connections to what came later. Mm. And what was your original question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that actually kind of, exp that kind of explains it kind of beautifully. I guess it was just around... This kind oh, of relation. Well, yeah, yes, it's well, Duchamp. Well, it's about actually again. It's about this question of of how we how we value this 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 older knowledge in terms of next to you know to to Duchamp and in, in, in the museum. And it, it seemed like yeah. there, there was a kind of a political action that you were making as well. Well, he did as well with his. Um, some oh, people but, call it a mile of string, and the others or twenty miles of string. Yeah. He took over a surreal, surrealist exhibition and. 1942 by stringing yes. 
string right through the space. Nobody could actually access the the work of the other artists. So he <laughs> he kind of was very he he was more subversive than they were. Yes. <laughs> but when he did that, he opened up space where you didn't have to put your work on the walls. Your work could be in space. Yeah. So it's the beginning of installation, which and, and I'm an installation artist, so it's kind of homage to him. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um. The, the whole digital. A whole area of the digital technology since De Papa has opened, it's changed so hugely. And I know at the moment that you're working with your daughter, Kerry Lander, um, on some digital archiving of, of your work, which must be uh, an interesting process of going back through all of this material and trying to to bring it together. So literally somebody like yourself who's lectured in material culture, taking your own material and making it digital. Yeah, well, it's um, it's been a really interesting exercise and timely too because people are starting to ask me for images and some of those images are the only thing I have to say I ever did that work Yeah. and even those images were starting to change colour they were slides and prints and so luckily we've been able to rescue those early ones but the digitally born ones, there's so many of them, we haven't got on top of that yet and I'm, I'm still a working artist so I'm still generating more images. Well, that's fantastic. People can go to a link off our webpage to an Instagram account that you've got running with Kerry, which is fascinating in terms of, of the of, of the work that you continue to do. And I, before we finish today, Maureen, I really wanted to take us back to the north, and uh, I know you're about to do a, a residency. Well, maybe we could mention that first in Rawini, where you come from, in, in uh, an artist residency that's now held in a church in the township there. Was that a church you went to when you were growing up? No, I was born in Rawani, but I didn't grow up there. Ah. My my father was a teacher, and we moved around, and I mainly went through school at Tikaraka, the little town that floods inland from Gisborne. Ah, right. Yeah, I went through <laughs> school there. But my grandparents and uncle lived there, and we used to go back a lot to Kohu Kohu, which is mm. just over the other side of the harbour yes. when you take the ferry. You take the ferry over. Yeah. And also go back to a little batch, family batch at Park and I. Then I bought my own batch at Omapare in the early 2000s mm. and had that for about 17 years and, and actually lived there f- for a few years after I retired. So it's where my whakapapa is on both my grandmother and my grandfather's side. So the, my grandmother's side goes back into Firinaki where... Where the Araha is, is the mm. base for the weaving of the ra. So lots of really strong links. And the brief for being on the residency is to respond to being there. <laughs> and I think, oh gosh, there's so much to respond to. It's so rich. I think I'm just going to go and hang out and see what happens. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to hearing more from how that, that turns out for you. Meanwhile... There's another exhibition currently underway, just on the other coast in Kerikeri, which also connects to your whakapapa, to, to, to the Napui side, um, which is rather interesting. So in, in the, the Kerikeri mission there, the, the historic Kemp House, you've, you've got a series of works there, I, I believe, that are sort of inspired by the connections of various Napui figures to the mission station. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how that's sort of come about? Yes, well, it's probably started by looking at things in museums and looking at early images like Merritt's um, image of Ngāpuhi warrior chiefs. Yes. 
and seeing someone like Hariata Rungu, who was Hongi Heke's daughter, um, sort of adorning the shoulder of Hongi Heke <laughs> and sort of looking like she's just there because he's there, ah. and Kawate, and reading up about her, I discovered she was, uh, she had more mana than he did, was really highly thought of and was a warrior chief in her own right. And she was wearing a kind of a sash, which they had the National Library described as a cloak, and I looked at it and thought, well, it's definitely not a cloak. Mm. And my great-great-grandfather had described her as leading her warriors, wearing her tartan sash that she wore, and her war bonnet, you know, <laughs> blue bonnet with red feathers. And I thought, oh, I'm going to make some things based on, you know, the the narrative plus the paintings. And um, I had already made a flag for Honiheke based on a flag in the British Museum and put his image onto it. Uh, it's mm. crochet, it's not crochet, it's embroidered onto a flag which is made the same way you make a cloak. So mm. it just started to accumulate. And as I went, I made up backstories. And um, there's a red cloak in the British Museum which I looked at and thought, that's the one Honiheke's. Uh, Hongi Hika is wearing in the Barry painting before mm. he goes to meet the king. So what happened to it when he met the king? Huh. Hey, of course, he gave it to the king in, in return for all the armour and guns and whatever. <laughs> and what happened to it after that? Well, the British Museum discover a, um, a kōkawai stained cloak and they don't know how they got it. So I just, I'm an artist, I just link things up and give them a backstory. That's beautiful. And and you're showing that red cloak in the very, I think in the very um, room where Hongi probably would have sat with William Kemp and sat around together. So it's a, kind of a beautiful installation element to, to the heritage and, and y- your work going on here. Yeah. I deconstructed a cloak I had made because I wanted to, I had done it with Tanikaha, which makes it red, but I... No, the one in the British Museum has got ochre. So I had deconstructed this one and started experimenting with ochres. Mm. And so it's like all the bundles that you would need to to reconstruct Hongi's cloak. Okay. But it's just deconstructed. So I like that idea. You know, like when you look at a cloak, you don't see all the elements it's made up of. Okay, yes. So it's it's a way of us actually being able to under, again understand the kind of the the, the magic and within within the making of of the work rather than treating it as some kind of distant kind of yeah the, the gathering object. the preparation of the materials mm. they're all such an important part of anything that you do. Thank you for joining us today, Maureen. We could spend ages talking. I'd love to hear some more about how things go after you've been in Rawini. Thank you for joining us here on the show today. Kia ora. Kia ora. <laughs>